If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The 14th to 16th centuries saw the rise and fall of one of the most successful dynasties within Europe. And yet the story of the Jagiellonians remains pretty much unknown in the UK. From their pagan tribal origins in Lithuania, the Jagiellonians rose to prominence as one of the biggest Catholic dynasties in Europe, building an expansive empire influenced by both East and West. Emily Briffitt spoke to the University of Oxford historian, Professor Natalia Novakovska. They spoke all about the dynasty and how their legacy is still felt today. Today, we're going to be talking all about the Jagiellonian dynasty. So to start us off, I want to give us a bit of a framework to work with. What sort of time are we talking about here and what sort of place, location, that kind of thing? So perhaps we'll start with the dates. So the official dates that are usually given for the Agulonians are 1377 to 1572. So the first of those dates marks the point where the founder of the dynasty, Yogaila, came to power in Lithuania. The second date, 1572, is when his male line becomes extinguished when his great-grandson Sigismund Augustus dies without heir as king of Poland. 
having said that, those days, as with a lot of dynasties, um, they sound quite hard and fast, but there's a sort of shadowland at each side. So they have a very significant prehistory. When Yogaila comes to power as Grand Duke of Lithuania, Lithuania is already the largest territorial state in Europe. So he's had pagan ancestors who've been very busy creating this large territory. And at the other end, when Sigismund Augustus dies in 1572, he has no heir, but he has three sisters who remain very active in international politics, very assertive about their dynastic identity. And in fact, the youngest of those sisters, Anna, is crowned Queen of Poland in 1575. And when she dies in 1596, she has the words, Anna, last of the Aguilonians, written in quite big letters on her tomb. So she would say the end is 1596. And in terms of where, I think it's hard to overstate the sheer scale of the territories that the Aguilonians rule. Um, if you measured them, they're about 1,800 kilometres across, east to west, and about 1,600 north to south. So if we plot that on a map, east-wise, they, they reach to Poltava, which is east of Kiev, and west all the way to Prague. And their northernmost point is Gdańsk on the Baltic coast in today's Poland, and they reach right down to the Adriatic shores of Croatia. So all the lands that were ruled by Aguilonians now make up 12 modern day nation states. And in addition to that, they have a, a kind of outer ring of influence, which traditionally hasn't been studied quite so much, because they have a policy for 200 years of marrying their daughters to their western and southern neighbours. So for 200 years, the Aguilonian daughters crop up as Archduchess of Austria, or Electress of Brandenburg and Berlin, uh, or Grand Duchess of Finland, or Queen of Sweden. So so the sheer geographical range, the presence of a dynasty, the amount of territory they rule is really significant. They rule at their peak probably about a third of Catholic Latin Europe and a lot of the Orthodox world as well. So that's one of their very distinctive features, just the sheer hugeness of the lands that we're talking about. That's actually incredible. Can you give us the lowdown on the dynasty in charge? Who exactly were they? Yes, about to think about origins before going into the detail of this expansion and how, how they get to this position. So the origins are, are really unusual for a Renaissance dynasty. It's hard, to, again, to overstate how, how different they are in their origin story to the dynasties we tend to hear about, like the Medici and the Tudors um, and the Habsburgs. So they, they start out essentially as... Um, what we tend to still call a pagan tribe, and both those terms are quite quite loaded terms, but they they originate in what is present day Lithuania on this sort of Baltic forested area, um, and in the 13th century, the Lithuanians that they're, they're still following their native animist nature worship religion, which we tend to call paganism. And there comes a point in the 13th century, these different tribes coalesce into one big group and one leader emerges, whom we today call a grand duke. We don't know what they called the leader in their own day. And from that, gradually in the early 14th century, a single ruling line or dynasty emerges, which tends to be traced to a pagan lord called Gediminas. Um, and it's from that line that Yogaila emerges. And the reason we talk about Yogaila as the founder, not Gediminas, at least in most historiography of the past few hundred years, is because Yogaila makes this, this critical move to the West, um, that he converts from paganism to Catholicism in 1386, because he's invited to rule Poland and he accepts the Polish crown. And so his, his conversion marks the moment at which this dynasty, which is very rooted in the Eastern world, in the pagan world, they make an entry into the Latin West and start to rule as Latin kings. I want to return to their relationships with the East and the West and that kind of thing. 
Could you perhaps briefly run us through some of their headline events during their rulership? Expansive time. Are there any things we should know about? So maybe if I first give a little sketch of how they acquire these territories, then perhaps what the big moments in that are. The way they get from this rather unlikely point of um, you know, a Lithuanian tribal, tribal entity to being the biggest Catholic dynasty in Europe, we essentially can see it's happening in three waves. Um, and the first wave is this original tribal period in Lithuania. But the second big wave is when they move into the lands, what we today tend to call Eastern Europe. Um, so Belarus, Ukraine and Western Russia, because as these tribes come together and they have their ruling dynasty and Gediminas is their duke, they embark on this huge campaign of territorial acquisition. Over the course of the 14th century, all of what we today call Belarus, almost all of Ukraine, certainly to somewhat east of Kiev, and a lot of Western Russia as well is ruled by them. So towns we think of as quintessentially Russian today, like Smolensk or Vitebsk, become part of this Lithuanian state. They reach within 100 miles of Moscow. So in the 13th, 14th centuries, they're busy conquering this huge orthodox sort of East Slav um, territory. And then the third wave is when they move into the Catholic West. And what's very interesting about that is that the monarchies that they move into, Poland, and then Bohemia as well, and then Hungary as well, these are all elective monarchies in the 15th century. And also quite different on the map, it's worth saying. So Poland is actually quite small when the Aguilenians take it over. It's, uh, it's not at all the shape Poland is today. It's a slightly strange sort of diagonal that goes um, not quite from the Baltic, but all the way down to Lviv in present-day Ukraine. Um, so they have that from 1386, Mugaila's conversion, and then his descendants start being elected to other thrones. So they spread further into Catholic Europe. So in 1471, they're elected to the Kingdom of Bohemia. And then a really big breakthrough is 1490, when they securely are elected to the throne of Hungary. And Hungary, again, is much, much bigger in the, um, like Lithuania, in the 15th, 16th centuries than it is today. So when we say they're kings of Hungary, it means they rule present-day Hungary and present-day Slovakia, um, a lot of present-day Romania, part of present-day Serbia and present-day Croatia. So that's how they end up with this huge swathe of territory. And in terms of the yeah, headline events, um, so I think I would pick two battles and um, a wedding as perhaps the, the kind of moments that epitomise their rise and fall. So the first moment is um, perhaps the most famous military clash they're involved with. This is the Battle of Tannenberg or Grunwald, which takes place in July 1410. And this involves the dynasty's founder, Jogaila. It's about almost 30 years after his baptism. Uh, and he is fighting on, on his side. He has Lithuanian troops, the Polish army, his Lithuanian cousin, Vitautas, and some Tartars led by a Tartar leader called Jalal Aldin. And they're at this small village of Grunwald to fight the, the massed forces of the Teutonic Knights of Prussia, one of late medieval Europe's great crusading orders. And the Teutonic Knights have a lot of Western volunteers, a lot of German volunteer knights who've come to, to fight with them. So this battle takes place in the Prussian countryside in what is now northern Poland, and it's a crushing defeat for the Teutonic Knights. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Teutonic Knights have been placed and settled on the Baltic primarily to, to kill and eradicate pagan powers. And Teutonic Knights have been posing a sort of existential threat to Lithuania for, for several decades. So 
Here they're eradicating their kind of number one threat and enemy. But I think for the Aguilonian story, it's really important because when Yogaila wins this battle in 1410, that marks the moment in which he sort of arrives in Western eyes. Because the first 30 years of his reign in Poland, I think a lot of Western monarchs and commentators don't know who he is and don't really accept him as a Catholic monarch. Um, they, they still think he might be pagan. There's a lot of strange rumours about who he really is. But it's when he has this, this sort of crushing victory, which is witnessed by knights from Germany and from all over Western Europe, then they realise this is the major new power in Catholic Europe they're going to have to deal with. So that's one event. If we move on to a marriage, a less belligerent moment, I think a crucial moment in their ascendancy is 1454, when Jogaila's son, Casimir IV, marries a princess called Elizabeth of Austria. And on the face of it, she had a very difficult life. She's quite a sort of complex personality. She's a Habsburg princess, but she's an orphan. She's the last representative of one key branch of the Habsburgs. She's been brought up almost in poverty um, at the Habsburg court as a kind of distant poor relation. We also know from investigations of her tomb that she has a very significant um, physical disability, a major spinal problem. But what she represents when she turns up in Krakow um, is that she gives the Aglonians a real kind of bloodline dynastic legitimacy in the eyes of the Catholic world they've lacked up till then, because she's one of the most elite highborn princesses in Europe in the 1450s. Um, on her mother's side, she's descended from the Holy Roman Empress of the Luxembourg line, on her father's side from the Habsburgs. And so she brings not only kind of recognition to the Aguilonians, but it means that her children with Casimir also have legal claims to Hungary and Bohemia, which her father ruled, but also have claims potentially to Austria and even the Holy Roman Empire itself. So that wedding is the moment where the Aguilonians really arrive kind of dynastically and legally. I suppose the third moment is uh, a battle they lose, which marks the start of their decline. This is a battle, a very dramatic battle, which takes place in eastern Hungary in Mohac in 1526, again in summer. And here a Jagiellonian, very young Jagiellonian king of Hungary and Bohemia, Louis II, he's only 20. Um, he tries to defend Hungary from the armies of the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, and he loses catastrophically. He himself dies. He seems to drown in a stream, we think, retreating. A lot of the Hungarian nobility are killed. And that's the point to which the Aguilonians lose completely these two great kingdoms of Hungary and Bohemia. And they start to retreat back towards the Baltic. Just to finish off the story, how did this dynasty come to its end? So I think we can think about that in terms, two ways. Firstly, in terms of geographical shrinkage, but also in terms of genealogical kind of dynastic extinction. So in terms of territories, we've discussed this huge peak that they have. So there's a shrinkage from the south and from the east. So it's this Battle of Mohatch. That's the point at which they, they lose what we call the Danube Basin, all these lands south of Poland. But at the same time, they have a problem in the east. So this huge Grand Duch of Lithuania that they'd conquered as pagans in the 13th and 14th centuries, that's starting to lose a lot of land because of the rise of Muscovy. So Moscow, for a lot of the period we've been talking about, the 14th, early 15th centuries, it's a pretty small town. It's a really small power. Um, it's often a client state of, of the Lithuanian ruling family. By the time we get to the late 15th century, um, Muscovy is really finding its feet. And Ivan III, in particular, starts to wage campaigns of conquest against, um, he pushes westwards against the Grand Duchy. So really from the sort of 1480s, 1490s onwards, their, their lands are being 
nibbled away at or kind of increasingly eaten away at um, by this new power of Muscovy. So their land is shrinking. Geologically, their extinction is a very strange thing because they're famous in Europe throughout the whole 15th century for being one of the most fertile dynasties anyone can remember seeing. So your Gaila himself, the founder, he has 18 siblings. Casimir IV with his princess Elizabeth of Austria, they have 13 children. A lot of their daughters, when they're married to German-speaking lands, a lot of their daughters have 10 children each. So it's very hard to draw family trees. They're a huge dynasty, famously fertile. And then it suddenly stops. And this is quite curious. Um, and it stops in the mid-16th century, the last king, Sigismund Augustus, the last Jagiellonian king of Poland, last Grand Duke of Lithuania, because he he has a very complex marital life. He's, you know, he's almost sort of the closest figure we have in Poland to Henry VIII. So he gets through a lot of marriages, you know, messy attempts to divorces, a lot of scandals about his affairs. But when he dies, aged 52, he's not had any legitimate children. And not only that, but also he's, his three sisters, another potential dynastic asset, he's kept them at court and not married them off for the most part, or else married them very late, almost past childbearing age. And that's something we still don't quite understand, why he has no apparent interest in preserving the line. Polish historians have often said, as a lot of 16th century contemporaries said, they've said, this is his personal fault. This is due to psychological problems he had. He's a womanizer. It's his moral failing. I suspect it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, I suspect it's something to do with how the Aguilonians try and navigate this transition from a clan, which has many, many branches, to a single ruling family, which is moving towards a more kind of Western model of primogeniture. But they, they don't quite pull off that transition and they, they die out. So we've kind of taken a little bit of a quick blast through the story, but I want to take a dive back into the middle. We've spoken about the expanse of the region that they ruled over. How did they manage to rule over such a wide area? Yeah, this is a really good question. And what makes them, again, very interesting and quite striking is they have to rule in two completely different ways in the two parts of their of their dynastic lands. So in the eastern part, in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, in the Belarus, Ukraine, Western Russia areas, they rule that simply through hereditary inheritance. So they're very clear, the Aguilonians, that this is their, their patrimonial possession. It's what historians of the West sometimes call proprietary dynasticism. You know, these lands are the family's possession. So that part is quite straightforward and quite familiar if one knows West European history. Perhaps what's a little stranger to us or less familiar is how they rule their Catholic lands, so these great kingdoms of Hungary, Bohemia and Poland, because those are elective in this period. So they have to be invited in. So what elective monarchy means in practice is, is not that it, but not talking about mass franchise or mass suffrage. And um, it's the royal council, the top nobility who tend to elect kings. So the equivalent of perhaps the Privy Council or even the House of Lords in a slimmed down version. So about 40 bishops and top nobles of Hungary or Bohemia or Poland will gather. Um, there's an increasing elaborate ceremony for electing kings. So, so this is how their, their power is gained, but also constantly renewed in these kingdoms. At each succession, the elites have to choose again to stick with this dynasty. And very strange, very interesting tensions arise there because on the one hand, the Agones themselves they try as hard as they can to make these elective crowns hereditary. They want to establish their power there on a longer term footing. And the local elites, on the one hand, they quite like the idea of the stability of having a single known ruling family, but they're not prepared to give up their right to elect their kings. So the way they fudge this is, is the language that's used at these elections. 
So for example, when Alexander Aglion is elected King of Poland in 1501, the electors sent him a letter and say, well, congratulations, we've elected you King of Poland, well done. But you should know that the Holy Spirit led us to choose you from among all the princes of Christendom. So they imply that they've weighed up every possible royal in late medieval Europe and they've chosen him. And it's nothing to do with his family or his descent. At other elections, they use metaphors. So a Polish election in 1434, they say to the young prince, you have no right to this throne. We have elected you. But we chose you rather than anybody else because your father, your Gaila, was such a great warrior and we think you're likely to inherit his virtues and his talents. So they, they fudge it in quite a, quite a careful and quite a subtle way. One of the things that we've kind of spoken a little bit about through this is almost a relationship towards Renaissance West, but also to the East as well. How did the Jagiellonian dynasty define itself in relation to other dynasties, other states surrounding it? So again, that's a really interesting, complicated question because they face in so many different directions. So the first thing to say is that they retain a very strong relationship with the Orthodox lands, a kind of cultural relationship as well. So even in the pagan period, um, before Yogaila's conversion, when they rule the, the Orthodox lands of Belarus, Ukraine, Western Russia, part of the way in which they do that is members of the dynasty, some members convert to Orthodox Christianity, and um, so they can rule as Orthodox princes in Kiev or Polotsk in Belarus. And where the dynasty remains officially pagan until 1386, there's a very strong cultural influence of the Orthodox world upon them. And we see this very clearly in Yogaila himself. So when he, even when he's king of Poland and he's a baptised Catholic, if we look at court financial records, we see that how many of his staff are Orthodox staff from these kind of Rus lands of Belarus, Ukraine, Western Russia. Um, all of his hunting staff are from that area. Um, all his musicians are. And also a lot of his painters. And this is something that's puzzled historians of Poland a lot that Jogaila commissions painters from the Orthodox church tradition, not only to paint his bedroom in Orthodox style, as it were, but also to put large-scale Orthodox religious frescoes in some of Poland's top Catholic shrines um, in Sandomierz, in Lublin, in Kraków. And even a century after Jogaila, one of his sons, Kazmier IV, in the 1470s, a century after the conversion, virtually, he's still commissioning Orthodox art for his funeral chapel in Krakow Cathedral. So this is part of a kind of interesting hybridity or perhaps cultural multilingualism of the Aguilonians, that they remain very much in dialogue with this heritage of their Orthodox lands. But at the same time, they are a, a kind of bona fide Renaissance Western dynasty. Um, so we see this again with Yogaila very early on. He organises chivalric jousting at his court. He really understands the cult of chivalry. He knows how to perform with the heraldry and what sorts of events to stage. But particularly when it comes to, to Renaissance art. So art historians who look at how the Italian Renaissance, how it spreads, how it's diffused outside Italy, they've been struck for a long time how quickly it comes to Eastern Europe. You know, it comes to Buda and Prague and Krakow, often before it's come to many West European kingdoms, such as France. So the Aguilonians are very avant-garde in their artistic interests. If we look at their tombs, for example, their tombs are always artistically cutting edge. So Yogaila's tomb is very striking because this is a man who had buried his father, had cremated his father on a pagan funeral pyre. But then his own tomb in Krakow Cathedral is um, 
is a we think it's a Milanese artist. It's early Renaissance style. It's fantastic royal sculpture in West European artistic mode. And really right through their reign in Poland and Bohemia and Hungary, they are cutting edge patrons of Renaissance art. And also they have very strong geopolitical connections to the West too through their marriages. They marry Italian princesses, they marry French princesses, endless German, Habsburg, Austrian princesses. So their reach culturally is, is very, very wide. But what I think makes them really unusual is not just this orthodox and this Western Renaissance aspect, but something I think historians are only just starting to talk about, which is their links to Central Asia and the Tartar world as well. So if we look at Lithuanian tribal religion in the so-called pagan phase, um, a lot of the kind of culture of that tribe is very, very similar to the culture of tribes, nomadic tribes on the steppe, um, including the Mongols themselves and, and other nomadic medieval peoples like the Pechenegs and the Cumans. So there's a kind of shared native religion, cultural hinterland they share with the steppe. But then as they, as they start ruling further and further east, the Aguilonians end up having very close political relationships with Tartars. And we see this in their coinage, for example. So some of the coins the Ogailan has minted in Vilnius, even after his baptism as a Catholic king, they have Mongol symbols. So some of them have a device that we call the Tibetan knot of happiness, you know, Buddhist symbols that have come across the steppe through kind of Mongol empire hands and end up on Lithuanian coinage by a Catholic king. It's also clear that if we look at the some of the personal behaviour and political habits of the Aguilonians, that the way in which they hunt, um, the way in which they behave on the battlefield, um, the way in which they approach religious toleration, a lot of that, I think we can say, is a result of really intimate contact with the Tartar world and a certain amount of acculturation as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So normally we think about the Renaissance as the period, which is the rise of the West, the rise of Atlantic empires, the rise of centralised proto-nation states, early forms of capitalism and so on. But at the same time, the Aguilonians show that in the period when Europe is meant to be rising as a kind of international power base, there are people from outside Catholic Christendom, you know, from, from pagan steppe-like backgrounds, who can come in completely from the outside and end up ruling a large part of Europe. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So with such cultural fluidity, how did the Aguilonians see themselves? So because they rule quite a long time, I think this evolves over the, the 200 plus years. Um, 
with your guy lad, the person who creates this whole sort of orthodox Catholic Lithuanian monarchy, it's very hard to say, there's not that much evidence, but I think probably he thought of it in terms of his individual lordship. I, I don't think he thought of himself as part, as founding a dynasty at all. Um, I think he thought of himself as a sort of super powerful grand duke and an almost imperial mould. But then as they spend more time ruling in the West, it's interesting that they they, they really, the Aglonians, see themselves in the 15th and 16th centuries as um a completely Western Catholic elite dynasty. They're very, very proud of their different bloodlines. And so by the time we get to the end, by the time someone like Anne Aguilon, this last Jagiellonian queen of Poland, with, with her tomb in Krakow Cathedral, saying, I'm the last Jagiellonian, you know, her dynastic identity, she's very proud of it. Um, she puts lots of different coats of arms, you know, wherever she can on her on her personal objects on her tomb. I mean, she clearly sees herself as descended from multiple royal houses. So she's very proud of the fact that her mother was a Svorza princess of Milan. Um, she also has descent from the, the house of Aragon in Spain, the Neapolitan kings there. So she thinks that she's plugged into you know, high Italian and Spanish royalty. She also is very conscious of the Habsburg descent the family has and the Lithuanian side. Um, so the Aglonians by the late 16th century, see themselves as some of the most senior royals in Europe because they think that so many different bloodlines have kind of coalesced and come together in them. But the very interesting question is what, how far they see themselves as Jagiellonians specifically. And this is something which emerges surprisingly late. Uh, I think we know the Tudors as well, that, that the Tudors is a concept that, that emerges partly in retrospect. The Aglonians, that's only half true. They are, they are already in power when this idea starts to emerge, but it comes from strange quarters. So it's not the royal family themselves who start saying, we were founded by Yogaila and this is our name and this is who we are. It's very much their quarters, so particularly Renaissance humanists, Renaissance historians and scholars and poets at their courts from the 1510s in particular, start writing new kinds of Renaissance poetry, Renaissance speeches. A lot of these are written for royal weddings or baptisms or funerals. And it's in these kinds of court literary texts that the idea of a Jagiellonian dynasty with a particular history and of distinctive identity is really expressed. And it after about 50 years, the family themselves internalise this. So you can see that the last generation of Aglonians are very much talking about this as their identity. They've kind of believed what the poets have said and they, they've absorbed it for themselves. Why is this useful when talking about the history of Europe at this time as a whole? Yes. So I think there are a number of things which make the Aguilonians, um, I think, unique among Renaissance dynasties that, that we're perhaps more familiar with. These are features which I think do perhaps uh, shake up slightly the way we tend to think of, of Renaissance Europe, at least certainly in the, in the West. So I think firstly, what's really distinctive is this, this fact they, they come in from the outside. Um, so you know, most of the Renaissance dynasties we, we're used to thinking about have genealogies, royal links, which are very firmly rooted in Catholic Europe or in Western Europe. And you know, the Tudors haven't appeared from some completely different cultural zone. They, they're clearly rooted in the British Isles, for example. And the Aguilonians are doing something which, which looks, makes them look very displaced in space and time. Um, the, the, the very whole image of Yogaila as essentially a sort of pagan tribal leader who converts and becomes the Western king. That type of event is one we associate with the early Middle Ages in Europe, you know, with the conversion of Scandinavia and the Vikings and the German tribes. So the, the way in which they, they perhaps shake up our sense of chronology and, and the way in which they, yeah, they, they come into the outside is very interesting. I would say in particular, though, they show that 
Renaissance Europe is really entangled with the Orthodox world and the steppe in ways we're not used to thinking about. So this is one of the top dynasties in Europe. They marry extensively into Western houses, but at the same time as they're marrying princesses from the Kingdom of Navarre or princesses related to the French royal family, they they are dealing with Tartars. They have Tartar iconography that they use as part of their heraldry. And it just shows shows Eastern Europe isn't it's not just a kind of small frontier zone. I think the Aglaians by spanning so much of the Western part of Europe and the East as well show that the steppe, the Orthodox world and the Renaissance West are kind of more muddled up in this period. You, know, you, can't, you can't draw straight lines. And you can't even say, well, this is a frontier zone. The whole thing is, is one big connected web in this period. I think we could go further than that and say it's not just that the Aguilarians show that the steppe and the Orthodox world are entangled with Renaissance Europe. I think they also show that this Eastern world is really encroaching on Catholic Latin Europe in quite surprising ways. So normally we think about the Renaissance as the period, which is the rise of the West, the rise of Atlantic empires, the rise of centralised proto-nation states, early forms of capitalism and so on. But at the same time, the Aguilonians show that in the period when Europe is meant to be rising as a kind of international power base, there are people from outside Catholic Christendom, you know, from, from pagan steppe-like backgrounds who can come in completely from the outside and end up ruling a large part of Europe. And here I think the Aglaeans have a very interesting parallel with the Ottomans, because we normally think of the Aglaeans and the Ottomans as as completely separate and opposing forces. The Aglaeans tend to feature as crusaders, defending Catholic frontiers, and the Ottomans uh, appear as a sort of Muslim other in traditional European historiography. But I think if we turn it round, we can say they're really similar because both the Ottomans and the Aglonians originate as tribes with traditional tribal religions from the steppe world. And they just take very different routes. So the Ottomans um, come into Anatolia, they convert to Islam, they obviously start to dismantle the Byzantine Empire. And through conquest, they move west into the Balkans. And the Aglonians instead convert, they enter the, the kind of Latin Catholic world through conversion, through royal election. But you can see these are two very similar at heart tribal powers and their origins, which move very far into Western spaces. And if you look at a map of Europe in the 16th century, if you put together what's ruled by the Aglonians and what's ruled by the Ottomans, that is a very, so that's over half of Europe. Um, so I think we need to start writing the steppe and you know, the kind of Eurasian context, Renaissance Europe, into our histories a lot more. Well, you've spoken a little bit about the slightly earlier historiography, how they were remembered by their own people almost at the time that they were ruling. But how has this period in history been remembered more recently or since then? So, um, although they rule this very, very large area, in the 19th century in particular, um, with with the rise of different European nationalisms, what we see is that the memory of the Aglonians becomes hugely fragmented across Europe. So I think I mentioned that about 12 modern nation states were ruled by Aglonians at some point. So that's 12 different traditions that all start to develop their own stories about the Aglonians in parallel. And so mainly what happens in the 19th and 20th centuries is the Aglonians are sort of cut down, their history is cut down into sort of nation-shaped categories. Um, and historians, for example, in Poland will be mainly interested in their impact on Poland, how the Aglonians who ruled as kings of Poland behave there, with a lot less attention on the Aglonians in Hungary or Bohemia, or perhaps the princesses in Germany or Scandinavia. Um, so 
This is a challenge for historians that we have this really kind of fragmented picture and a lot of these traditions haven't been very much in dialogue with each other. It's been a bit of a change, I think since about 2000, that historians in the region have started to try and talk about them in a more joined up way. So for example, there was a a major exhibition, art exhibition in 2012-2013, which travelled across Germany and Central Europe about the art of the Aguilonian courts, um, where they they managed remarkably to have a lot of the the key artistic treasures from the period um, gathered into one exhibition and they travelled around. And another aspect of memory, I think in the present day, is the way in which they're remembered in popular culture and historical novels and films. So just as in the English-speaking world, we're accustomed to seeing lots of novels and televised adaptations about Tudor women in particular or Western Renaissance queens, there's a, there's a very parallel phenomenon right across Central Europe where in Belarus there was a, a musical about one of the Aguilonian queens staged in Minsk. Um, there's been a ballet uh, in Vilnius about another Aguilonian queen. There's a very large and rich modern historical fiction literature around this. Um, so they're, they're, they're very actively remembered, um, but with a growing emphasis on, on the women of the dynasty. But historiography and culture on side, I think there's a really important political dimension to all of this, which is that the Aguilonians are remembered also by politicians, and they're used a lot in political rhetoric in the region. So we start to see this very clearly after 1989, that particularly in, in Poland, when Poland's debating in parliament or Polish politicians or journalists debating what Polish foreign policy should look like, what Poland's place in Europe should be from the 1990s onwards. The Aguilonians are invoked very heavily uh, and they're developed as shorthand in Polish diplomatic debate. The question is whether Poland should have a Jagiellonian foreign policy or a Piast foreign policy, the Piast being the earlier medieval dynasty. And so if someone says Jagiellonian foreign policy, it means that Poland should really face east and have a kind of neighbourly, uh, maybe slightly paternalistic relationship with the countries that used to be ruled by the Jagiellonians as well. Um, and a Piast foreign policy means we should be very focused on our German neighbours and turn full face towards Western Europe. And that really comes from a tradition a very rich but quite problematic tradition that, that Poles from the 19th century have tended to read the Aguilonians not as an international dynasty originating in Vilnius, but as a form of Polish empire in Eastern Europe. So a lot of Polish memory. They acknowledge the Aguilonians are not in any sense ethnically Polish, that they're a dynasty arrived from outside. But the Aguilonian um, kind of empire is read as the kind of high watermark of Polish power in Europe in ways that other peoples and other traditions really don't accept, I should say. Politically, I think what's very important at the moment with the the invasion of Ukraine, we see a lot of Jagiellonian rhetoric in the background of what's being said right across Eastern and Central Europe. So I think it's quite striking that when um, the Belarusian government in exile or the Lithuanian government or the Polish government or even the Ukrainian government when they talk about how these countries are supporting each other right now and they talk about fraternal bonds and brotherhood and shared history, obviously referring in part to shared experiences in the modern world, experience of Nazi invasion and so on. But in the background, they're very much also talking about Jagiellonians. They're talking about the fact that these countries were in a single state together for hundreds of years under this Lithuanian dynasty. And on the other side, I think it's very interesting that if we compare some of the rhetoric that's used by the Grand Dukes of Moscow about the Aguilonians in the 15th century, that seems to me to be very strongly a precursor for some of the Kremlin's rhetoric today. So when Ivan III, in the late 15th century, when he starts pushing against Lithuania and conquering territory, he says that 
all these Orthodox lands that had formed Kievan Rus, that these lands should be ruled from Moscow, not from Vilnius. Because he says that the Grand Dukes of Lithuania, the Agilonians, because they're Catholics, they're a Western force, they're, they have no right to rule Orthodox populations. And so when he starts to invade Lithuania, he also says specifically, my armies are going in there to protect the Orthodox population from oppression by Catholics. So that language is already there, um, you know, very politicised, very rich, very interesting in the 15th century. It's used again in the 19th century when Russian imperial historiography is trying to think about what the Grand Duchy of Lithuania meant. Again, they have to tell the same story that it's a kind of anomaly, it's an interlude before everything properly returns to the rule of the Grand Duchy of Muscovy. And so when we hear pronouncements from the Kremlin today about a kind of eternal threat from the West, about Westerners illegitimately exerting rule over places like Belarus or, or Ukraine or even Poland. That language may strike us as very strange and you know, very unfamiliar in a Western context, but it has very deep roots and it goes right back to the Aguilonian period. So it's something that's very much affecting how parts of Eastern Europe are seeing themselves today. Could we say that? Yes, I think so. I mean, we have to see it in context because also... It's very much the case that the disasters of the 20th century, you know, World War II, the experience of communism, the Soviet Union, those things are very sort of uppermost layers of cultural memory. But the Aguilonian period is, is, is very much there as well because there is this whole memory and consciousness that all these countries are ruled together in one state um, under one system for so long. And I find it very interesting how far, you know, politicians in, in Moscow or Vilnius or Warsaw they are sort of talking about their early modern history. And I, I hope that Western politicians and diplomats understand that, that this is the deep hinterland to a lot of the political language and political claims being made today. Well, you spoke about Poland's interpretation of this history, but how about other regions? How did they see it? Yes, yeah, so it's hugely contrasting. I mean, we know that the Habsburgs remembered quite differently in their different lands, but the Aguilonians, it's a whole different order of magnitude of disagreement among their former peoples. So in Poland, yes, they're seen as perhaps as the Tudors are in, in Britain today, um, a kind of golden age, you know, a highly romanticised, a lot of nostalgia, but in a, the most famous dynasty, I think, they're seen as. It's very different. So in Lithuania, in Lithuanian national tradition in the modern period, there's a sense that the Aguilonians sold out Lithuania, that you know, while it was pagan and retained its authentic Baltic culture, this was a great thing. But there's, there's a lot of hostility towards Yogaila. Uh, the, the kind of standard line is that he sort of sold out Lithuania to get a Western crown, to become a Western king, have prestige in the West, and that he betrayed his country. Because the pagan Grand Dukes are seen as national heroes, and Yogaila is a very ambiguous figure. So I think traditionally there's been very mixed feelings about what the Aglanes represent in Lithuania. In Ukraine, in Ukrainian traditional historiography, you know, from the 19th century onwards, they're seen very negatively. They're seen as, again, a foreign dynasty um, who, who conquered or acquired these lands um, and that the Lithuanians were kind of a subject people. In Belarus, that was also the view for a long time, but actually that's changed under the Lukashenko government. The Lukashenko's regime instead has tried to portray the Aglonians as a Belarusian dynasty and a Belarusian empire. So this musical in Minsk I mentioned is part of that. There are statues, there are coins, um, there are educational programmes trying to say that although it's called the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, really it's Belarus and it's Belarusians who are ruling Hungary and Poland. 
Um, I think quite an interesting example is Finland, where um, a Jagiellonian Polish princess becomes Grand Duchess of Finland in the mid-16th century. And particularly Turku Castle in Finland is one of the, if you want, if one's interested today in where the main sites of Jagiellonian memory and perhaps merchandise are as well, Turku Castle is an amazing site because it's, it's where in Finnish tradition, this is where the Renaissance and Western culture reached Finland. So from the 19th century onwards, this princess Catherine Jagiellon, um, who is half Italian, when she arrives as a bride in Finland, she brings... Um, an Italian entourage, Italian Renaissance dress, arts. Um, she brings uh, cutlery and various table ornaments and so on. And for Finnish historians, this is uh, a kind of one-person embodiment of the West physically arriving in Finland and Finland joining a European family of nations. Um, I think probably the most negative image is in Hungary um, because this Battle of Mohac that I mentioned where the Aglonian king is killed by the sultan and, and loses, loses the realm... Because Hungary is partitioned after that um, and the medieval kingdom falls apart, um, Hungarian tradition, essentially a lot of it blames the Aguilonians for this. Um, and so Louis II, this last Aguilonian king, is seen as the person who is responsible for the decay of the Hungarian kingdom, a glory that's never since come back. So if you go to Budapest, to the main um, National History Museum or portrait galleries, there are fantastic 19th century paintings of the death of the Louis II, where he's, his body represents, in a sense, the death of Hungary in 1526. So very contrasting views in different parts of Europe. How do you think this dynasty has defined the region? In terms of how they define the region, I mean, it may seem, based on what I've said, that the memory is so fragmented, there's no shared memory or sense or shared sense of understanding of what they meant. It might seem, therefore, they're quite ephemeral. But I think if we if we stand back geopolitically, they have this very long term impact on Europe, and that's principally because with Ogaila's baptism and this huge territorial reach they build up, it's the only real attempt to rule all the lands, all the Catholic lands east of Germany, and all the kind of Rus Orthodox lands under one family as part of one sort of hegemony or system, and. No dynasty before that and no actual modern state or empire since has ruled all of those lands together in the way the Aguilonians did um, at the turn of the 15th and 16th centuries. And that's important because after they disappear, all of these constituent lands that they'd ruled, they get sucked into other empires. So their successors are the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, which lasts all the way to 1918, the Ottomans in the southeast. Then in the north, their lands become this elective nobles' republic of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But that is partitioned in the late 18th century. And most of the Agonian lands then pass into the Russian Empire and then ultimately into the USSR. So what this means, the Aguilonians had, had tried to create an empire in Central Europe that was sort of ruled by Central Europeans and hadn't been, in a sense, encroached on that much from the, from the outside. I think it is telling that if you look at historians or historical literature in Poland or Hungary or Bohemia, there's a sense that the loss of the Aguilonians, the passing of that dynasty, marks the end of the kind of autonomy and liberty of Central Europe, that, that the golden age that had existed in the late Middle Ages has passed and that from this point onwards, Central Europeans kind of lack agency because their lands are pushed around and taken over by really big powers to the East and the West. So why do you think this past is worth studying and understanding then? 
So I think they're worth studying because they're not that well known or understood in the West. Firstly, because they they do really shake up our sense of what Renaissance Europe is. So it has all these connections to the Orthodox world and the Tartar steppe. And it has this, this extraordinary elected dynasty ruling so much. It means a lot of our kind of classic models about the rise of nation states, the rise of maritime empires, the power of Western Europe, they just need to be perhaps revisited or refined a bit to incorporate the Aguilonians as part of a bigger European story. In terms of dynasties, I think the Aguilonians again, you know, is, is perhaps as a continuation of that, perhaps shake us out of our sense what we think we know Renaissance dynasty looks like because they're recently converted. Um, The dynasty itself has a very complex religious history from pagan to Catholic. Some of them are Orthodox. In the Reformation, they split a lot. Um, It's a dynasty which is elective, um, which is, is sort of moving from a clan-like structure to a Western dynastic structure. All of these things, again, are very different to what we based on West European examples, have said is the classic model of Renaissance dynasty. So I think they they offer us a, a much bigger panorama of Europe in this period, a much enriched one. And also, thirdly, I would say they that they absolutely underpin a lot of the long-term geopolitics of Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, and they're still very much present as ghosts in the landscape in terms of cultural memory, but also in terms of power politics and the kinds of languages of political power, the languages of historical justification, which we see in Eastern Europe at the moment. Um, to really read those and understand them, it's important to know the Aguilonian history, that, that all of those principal political actors in the region are very much aware of today. That was Natalia Novakovska, Professor of European History at the University of Oxford. She's published widely on the Jagiellonians and Central Europe in the Middle Ages. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.